If you'll be making your way to your seats, we are about to begin. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. There we go. It is great to see you on this Sunday morning. We are so thankful we get to gather together to worship the Lord and to sing His praises and to study His Word. We're thankful for those of you here in the sanctuary and those of you in the gymnasium and those of you worshiping from home. We are so thankful that we get to gather together this morning. Just several announcements for us this morning, but before we have announcements, we do have a farewell to say to Don and Jan. You're in the very back, but stand up for us. Don, Don and Jan, this is their last Sunday with us here at Gateway. That they are moving to Nebraska, where their daughter and family lives. And so Don and Jane have been part of Gateway since 2013. And over these last seven years, they've served in so many ways. And so many of you have been blessed by their ministry and by their love and by their encouragement. Don has been a deacon here for the last four years and has served so faithfully behind the scenes in so many ways, from security on the campus for us to cooking in the kitchen for different events and different prayer gatherings. He has just gone above and beyond and just his, his gentleness and graciousness, but his love to serve other people and helping people in need in the body. And even as they've walked through Jan's medical trials, just his steadfastness and Jan's steadfastness and their faith has been a testimony to me. And I know just so many of you are the way that a couple can love God and love each other so well in the midst of the hardships and the trials of life. So Don and Jan, we love you guys. We are going to miss y'all so much, but we are so thankful you get to be close to family and what a blessing that is. So just know we love you guys and we'll be praying for you. Let's give a, another thanks to Don and Jan for their years of service here. So after the service, there's some of you who want to say goodbye to them. So make sure you practice social distancing with them and protect their health as well. But I know that they'll be back there and want to get to see you and say goodbye to you. So now several announcements, several exciting things happening in the life of the church. Bible study classes resume in two weeks. So we've been waiting for this day to get back to our normal Sunday morning schedule. So in two weeks, Sunday school classes, Sunday Bible study, whatever you want to call them, resumes here on campus. I think we have a slide for that, Ethan. Um, but those will start back at 9 a.m. here on campus. That'll be our full kids ministry program. So that'll be birth through sixth grade. All those kids classes that use the gospel project curriculum, those are all starting back. Our youth ministry classes will continue with a study of Psalm 23 with Pastor CJ and the team leading that one in there. And then we'll have several adult classes that will be kicking back in as well. And we are just thrilled for this opportunity to gather back on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. to go deeper in the Word of God and to give you an opportunity to build community. So I hope even if you haven't been involved with our Sunday Bible study groups before, that you'll plan to join not this next week, but the first Sunday in October, October 4th at 9 a.m. Two other opportunities on Sundays coming up, and these are prayer opportunities to help us as a church go deeper in prayer and in seeking the Lord. This is coming out of what Mike Mertz and Steve Gillis led for us on a Friday night a few weeks ago. Several of you said we want to do this more often and we'll give you an opportunity for that. And so we have two opportunities on Sunday mornings for you. Sunday morning starting this next week, um, actually started this morning, but 8 a.m. in room one in the gym building. If you want to come an hour before Bible study groups start, there'll be a time of corporate prayer in room one in the gym building to pray over the services, to pray over our small groups, to pray over needs in the body. But then every other Sunday, so not this Sunday, but starting next Sunday, the 27th at 4 o'clock here in the sanctuary. So if you do evening life groups in the community, you have time to come do that before you come in here at 4 o'clock in the sanctuary. 
what Mike has facilitated before is going to be happening again. And so Mike and Parker Harris are going to be doing this together. So one of our deacons and one of our young adult leaders are working together to have a corporate prayer meeting in here every other Sunday at 4 o'clock. Just to seek the word and read scripture and pray together. That will not start today. That starts next Sunday, the 27th. So I hope you'll mark your calendar and join us in those opportunities. Also, another opportunity for us, we've mentioned several times before, is Operation Christmas Child. The shoebox, where you can fill a shoebox with gifts that go to kids all around the world. And with that, goes opportunities for the gospel. Now, in just a minute, Debbie Dixon's going to come because she has a personal testimony about this. But before the testimony, we want you to hear an audio clip of something that happened. Because there was a kid who received a shoebox in another country, and it changed this girl's life. She eventually came to the United States, got a job in Orlando at Disney World, of all places, but she wanted to find the family that some like 15 or more years before had blessed her with a shoebox and changed her life. And so she f- tracked down the family, found the lady's name on the, on the church website, and actually called the church office trying to locate the family that blessed her with a shoebox. So we have an audio clip for you for just a minute. I want you to hear this one-minute clip of this lady's voicemail. This is, again, the lady who you're hearing is the one who received the shoebox and was trying to find the family who blessed her. So I want you to hear this. And the rest of the story is, I was sitting at my table doing Operation Christmas Child Boxes because that was the thing to do. It was one more thing I was checking off the Christmas list, and a friend of mine from Birmingham called me and she said, Debbie, I think this will encourage you. So she starts telling me this story. She was sitting with Miss Hanson. They were working at the church when Miss Hanson got the message on this on the voicemail at the church and so she got to see the excitement well that should have encouraged me but it made me feel like a worm because I was just doing it to check the box and then the scripture started rolling don't despise the little ones because their angels behold the face of the father so I had to dig that scripture apart, and that despise does, I said, Father, I work with children every day, I don't hate them. That despise means pass them, ignore them. And here I had a treasure right in front of me and an opportunity, 
and I was really passing and ignoring because I was doing it all in, in my ability. Needless to say, I started to pray, Lord Jesus, let this toothbrush bless whoever gets it. Lord Jesus, let this scripture that's going in this box encourage whoever gets it. Not that I may ever hear from them, but I get to pray for them every day. So I would encourage you, if you're doing a box, pack it carefully, and then pray for your box buddy. That's what I, I've just decided that from now on when I do these boxes, I'm going to pray for the person that will get it. Because you know what? It's not about me and it's not about the results. It's about bringing the Father glory and his results. Well, thank you for that encouragement, and again, we want you to be involved with that. Boxes are in the very back there, so if you look back there, Missy's got them, and they're right behind Mike and Jenny um, by the vestibule doors, so feel free to grab you a box on the way out and start packing it and preparing that as we get ready to collect those in November. Last announcement for the morning, hopefully you've seen the email about this. If you're on our email list, if not, please let us know so we can get announcements to you. We get to celebrate communion this morning. It has been a while, friends, with COVID, and we get to celebrate communion this morning. Now, it's going to look a little bit different today because of COVID precautions. There's obviously not a loaf of bread and the juice sitting in front of me right here. We're not going to file down uh, very crammed in next to each other to get the elements, and I'll pick off the bread from the single loaf like we normally do. In front of you, on the row in front of you, are communion cups that are pre-sealed with the bread and with the juice. So you should be able to locate those if you're on the front row there behind you on there. If they're not enough elements or you don't see them, if you're in the gym there at a table in the back, there's also some on the baptistry ledge and some right by the sound booth there. If you have dietary needs, there's gluten-free elements located there and in the back and in the gym also. And so I just want to alert you to that. It's a little bit different. So just identify those elements and then um, we'll instruct you as observing communion together as we come to the end of the service. Now as we prepare to worship the Lord this morning, I want to read to us scripture. Could I ask you to stand please as we read the word of God and prepare our hearts to sing to our creator and our redeemer this morning. Romans chapter 8, there is thou, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law or the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, we get to celebrate this morning in song as we read the word, as we pray that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that Christ has defeated death for us and we have received the amazing gift of eternal life. Let's sing to the Lord this morning. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope and no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested and my life began. And ash was redeemed, only beauty remained. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested, my life began. 
Son of God in many you are high and lifted up. The world will praise your great name. Sing that again. Jesus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us. Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up. And all the world will praise your great name. Your great name. And the lost are saved. Lost are saved. Find their way at the sound of your great name. All content, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. No place at the sound of your great name. The enemy he has to leave at the sound of your great name. Jesus, worthy. Redeemer. Redeemer. 
Jesus worthy. Jesus worthy is the Lamb of us. to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We reflect on these songs that we've, we've sung this morning. We, we pray that they were pleasing to you. We, we're reminded of who you are and who we are. And we are not worthy. We're not worthy to come before you only because you have brought us into your family. There's nothing that we bring in and of ourselves. It was you and us, the work that you've done in us that makes that possible, that makes that right, that allows us to lift up our voices in praise that is pleasing to you. And we thank you so much for that. We thank you so much for that. We want to lift up some people who we don't believe have that opportunity. They are still without you in various places. We we lift up the folks that are in the Mistec body here in this city and in this, in this country, but in this city in particular, we pray for the church that is reaching out to them, the Mistec church, and for Pastor Halbricks and the folks that are working with him in that body to reach out to them, to that community, that, that people group that's here in our midst. And we just pray that they will uh, come to you, that your spirit will move among them and they will recognize you as worthy of glory and we'll praise your name. We lift up to you uh, folks that we uh, are involved with uh, that are pastors in India that go out into that Hindu population. And we just pray for them to speak your truth and for your spirit to reveal to those people that they can be a part of your family. You work in them through those pastors to bring them to yourself. We, we lift up to you the Trumai people in Brazil that are in the same situation and unreached people. We just pray for uh, people among them to recognize a reality of God and for uh, people there or folks from the outside to go in and speak to them and to carry your truth and to make, to make your presence real and your spirit to work in, in and on behalf of them to bring them to yourself. We thank you for that. We lift up and pray for these shoeboxes that'll go to various parts of the world and pray before they leave here, before their delivery, that your, your hand, your blessing is upon that and that what you would have revealed through that would be real to those children in those many different places that receive those. Your spirit goes before. Anything that we're doing in and of ourselves is just flesh. But your spirit can work in, in us, it can work through us, and it works uh, without us even there to, to bring people to a reality of you and to who you are. We thank you for that. We 
thank you for the opportunity to serve that we had Saturday in the uh, Capitol Heights. We pray for the ministry that's there, uh, that the Rotobacks uh, lead, and we pray for the other folks that are Christians in and amongst the, the faculty and the staff, and pray for Pastor Harrison and uh, his service there. We pray for those teachers and people who serve those children, and we just pray for your hand on them. We thank you that we had an opportunity to serve and be a help to them in what ways that we could. We pray that that's an encouragement to those folks and, and to that community and to those kids. <clears throat> we lift up to you this morning's offering, the offering that was given online and, and uh, the folks, uh, the, the money that will be left there. We pray for you to um, amplify that, those resources and help them be used effectively for your kingdom and what directions they go. We lift up to you, Pastor Grady, as he speaks your word, we pray that your spirit will help that to be real to us, that each of us will hear the aspects of your word spoken to us, that your spirit will just make that real, make it, make it just, make that real, make it what we need to hear individually. And thank you for what you do through him and your word in our congregation each day that we hear. We just lift up these prayers in your precious name, to you be glory. Think back to the analogy if you go to the doctor for your physical, your checkup. And he tells you the standard of where you need to be, where you should be aiming. It's a very real thing that we can go to the doctor, we can find out where we're supposed to be, where we are, and the doctor gives us a treatment plan, and we can walk away and think, yeah, I'm not going to do that, right? The doctor can say to you, hey, this is where your blood pressure is supposed to be, but your blood pressure is here, and we'll, I need you to change your diet, do these things, and do all this. You can be like, yeah, it can't be that bad. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to change my diet. I'm not going to do anything different. And you can, in theory, and not just theory, in fact, listen to the doctor, hear where you're falling short, and choose not to do anything about it. And friends, unfortunately, in the spiritual realm, that can happen as well. We can hear God's word, we can read God's word, and we can see what God's standard is for us. We can see them where we are and think, yeah, I'm not that bad. There's nothing that I really need to change or do differently. So the question for us this morning as we continue in James 4 is, how can we understand how sinful we really are? And then once we understand how sinful we really are, when we really see ourselves for who we are, what do we do about it. How can we understand how sinful we really are? And then when we see that reality, what are we to do to change? Our answer today comes from James chapter 4. We're going to try to be brave and tackle three verses this morning. We're going to get verses 8, 9, and 10 of James chapter 4. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, and I'm reading out of the English Standard 
version. Draw near to God. And mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the grace gift of your word. The God, that you don't hold back words we need to hear, even words that are hard and painful at times for us. We're thankful that you love us so much. You speak to us what exactly we need to hear. Lord, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in each one of our hearts to help us better understand how you see our sinfulness and better understand what we need to do in response to it. So would you take this and use this, Lord, to grow and sanctify us, your people, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So how do we understand how sinful we really are, and how do we change when we realize that? to handle that tough situation, but God gives us grace to see our sin for what it really is, to reveal to us where we stand before the Lord, and he shows us the ways in his grace to where we're not walking in faith, but his grace does more than that. It doesn't stop with just showing us where that gap is between where we're supposed to be and where we are. His grace then leads us to repent. His grace then leads us to repent and do what we are supposed to do. God's grace enables us to see our sin correctly and to repent appropriately. Now, let's dig into that and let's look at that. First of all, this is all about God's grace, friend. This is not a challenge for us to try harder to beat sin, to try harder to be holier, to give more effort. That's not what this text is about, and I don't want us to come away from it thinking, I just need to do more. This is all about God's grace. Now, I may be thinking, Grady, I didn't see the word grace in this text. Well, it's not in this text, but it's the overarching word over this whole section of James. Go back up two verses to verse 6 that we saw two weeks ago. But he gives more grace. James introduces everything that follows, flows out of that sentence. Everything else that he tells us in these following verses comes out of this idea that God gives grace. So what we saw last week, to resist the devil and he will flee from you, that's only possible by God's grace. And what we come to in these three verses today is eight different commands. James just gives command after command after command after command in these verses. And all these commands flow from this overarching theme, but God gives more grace. The only way I can resist the devil is by God's grace. And the only way I can do any of the things mentioned here in verses 8, 9, and 10, these eight commands, is by the grace of God. And the same is for you as well. We need God's grace. And in particular, these eight commands kind of show us two things. That God's grace enables us to see our sin for what it is, and God's grace enables us to then repent appropriately when he shows us our sin. Now let's take those apart in this text this morning. First of all, God's grace lets us see our sin correctly. So now the big question is, how does God's grace enable us to see our sin? How does God do this? Well, primarily his grace is given through his word. He's given to us his scripture, his written word, and it shows us his standard. It shows us what our lives are to be like, and he confronts us with the truth of his word, and then he fills us with his Holy Spirit who takes the word of God and applies it to our life and shows us and convicts us areas to where our life is not in alignment with his word. And he does that in this text. He has some really hard terms as he's writing to believers here. Go back to verse number eight this morning here. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Now notice this. You sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Now, this is God's grace gift to us in describing for us what our life is like when they're sent off. Remember, he's writing to believers here. This is a book written to followers of Christ, to Christians. And he uses two words here to describe what their lives are like right now. The first word he says, you're sinners. The word sinners means people who act contrary to the law of God. A sinner is one who acts contrary to the law of God. It's a word for disobedience. Now, remember, he's writing to believers here to give us a wake-up call to remind us that when we choose sin, we are choosing to disobey our Creator. When we choose sin, we are choosing to disobey the one who has redeemed us that we were just singing about. When we choose sin, we're choosing to reject the God that we say that we love. And that is so serious in God's eyes and is so serious to us. Look at the second term he uses for us in verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we saw this word before in James chapter 1, verse 8. Double-minded literally means double-souled. Let me just remind you what that, that term means. It means a person whose soul, by soul I mean their inner self, their inner person, their, their affections, their will. A person whose soul is divided between their faith and the world. To be double-minded, to be double-souled is a person who's, who's divided on the inside between their faith, what they say they believe about God, and the world. A double-minded, a double-souled person is a person who says, oh yeah, I follow God. But in their heart, they really don't want to fully live for him. This describes a person who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they really don't want to obey God's commands. Someone who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus, but they really don't want to seek grace to grow in holiness. This is a person who says, oh, yeah, I'm okay with God, when in reality they're holding tightly to their old ways and to their sin. And what James is doing is laying bare before us here that we all have a struggle with being double-minded sinners. That all of us struggle in different ways at different times with being double-minded sinners. And this struggle is real, and this struggle is deep for every single one of us. Again, remember, he's writing to believers here. And notice what he does to help us see the extent of our struggle with sin, our extent of our struggle with being double-minded. Look back at this last phrase of verse 8 again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded hands. This represents your actions. These are things that you do. Your heart represents your affections, your desires, your inner motivations, all those things. And what he is showing to us is that we all struggle with double-mindedness. We all struggle with sin, not just externally in our words and our actions and things people can see, but our struggle with being double-minded, with being sinners, goes much deeper than that. It affects our hearts, our affections, our desires, our motivations, and our thoughts. Friends, this is not exactly a happy verse for us. It's not the verse you get up in the morning, open up your devotion, and be like, oh, look, I got James chapter 4, verse 8 today. Look, I'm double-minded. Oh, look, I'm a sinner. And oh, look, my hands are dirty and my heart is dirty as well. Why then does God give us these hard words? Why then does James write something that on the surface seems so harsh to us? It's quite simply because he loves us. God gives us these hard truths of this assessment of our own heart and how wicked and double-minded our hearts can be because he loves us. This is a grace gift to us because God knows we can be so blind to how serious our sin is. We can find so many excuses to justify our sin and to excuse our sin and to not take seriously our sin and just to write it off and think we're not so bad when in reality we're spiritual adulterers, if you think of the term that James used a few weeks before. Hard verses like this and hard verses we saw a few weeks back where we're described as terms of spiritual adultery are given by God to wake us up to the reality of our sin so we quit justifying it. One author I read this week said it this way, and I want to share it because it was just so good. He said, we are far too hospitable with our sin. Think about the term hospitality and welcoming and including people. He says, we are far too hospitable with our sin. He said, when was the last time we looked our sin in the mirror 
and came away broken. It's a good question for us this morning, friends. When was the last time we dwelt and we saw our sin and we were broken because of it? He said, when was the last time we felt the gravity of our sin as a betrayal against a holy God? When was the last time we felt the gravity of our sin, that it was a betrayal against a holy God? He concludes with this, our hearts are callously numb. Though justified by the blood of Christ, we are still infiltrated with sin, and most of the time, we appear okay with it. Did you hear that? Though we're justified by the blood of Christ, we are still infiltrated with sin, and most of the time, we appear okay with it. We need help. We need reminders. And friends, God in his grace fills us with his Holy Spirit. God in his grace lays bare before us the sinfulness of our heart, our double-mindedness, how he views our sin as spiritual adultery. He lays it bare in the pages of his word. His Holy Spirit takes his word to open our eyes so we can see who we really are. And friends, when we see that, that raises our second question. When God in his grace shows us our sin and we see our sin correctly, what are we to do about it? How do we respond when we realize how we've sinned against God this week, yesterday, and even this morning on the way to church? What do we do when we realize our double-mindedness in these things? Well, friends, if we're honest, it's far too easy to do the wrong thing. It's far too easy to justify our sin. It's like if you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, you need to get your cholesterol down for your health, and you're like, eh, I'm okay, and then you go pick up your Chick-fil-A sandwich on the way home, right? You, it's, you find all these ways to justify that it's not as bad as you think it is, and you're okay. We do that with our sin. We justify. We see it in God's Word and go, but it's not that bad. Sometimes we try to pass the blame for our sin. This is only how, I'm only doing this because of my circumstances. I just can't help myself. We blame other people. We even blame God. It's just the way God made me. Sometimes we take it and we try to fix it ourselves, and we just try to try harder and just get that new help, that new book, that new group. Sometimes we even feel like we have to punish ourselves. I just need to feel guilty for this. I need to go retreat for a while and just be alone and just be sad about this. But friends, the problem with all those common approaches, whether we justify our sin, whether we pass the blame for our sin, whether we try to fix it ourselves, whether we try to punish ourselves for it, all those have one thing in common. Those all come from pride. Because all those approaches, whether justifying and excusing our sin, blaming others for our sin, trying to fix our sin ourselves, punishing ourselves and feeling guilty, all is about me. It's all selfish, it is all self-focused, and it's all approached about what is going to make me feel better about this thing in my life that I don't feel good about, and that's all forms of pride. So in God, when he shows us areas where we're falling short, what do we do? We don't justify, we don't blame, we don't try to fix it ourselves, we don't try to punish ourselves. What we do instead, it's the word I used two weeks ago, we repent. We have to repent. And God in his grace is not going to just enable us to see our sin. God is going to give us grace to repent appropriately. And I want to dig in on that for just a minute because verses 8, 9, and 10 here in James 4 is a beautiful picture of what repentance should look like. He describes for us in a beautiful way this kind of concept that's hard to get our minds around that we need to repent for our sins. He shows us what repentance looks like. Now three weeks ago, I know it seems like a long time back, in verses 4 and 5 I mentioned repentance at the end of the service. And then I mentioned several things that repentance involves, and I want us to revisit those this morning because this text shows us all the things that repentance includes. I want us to go a little bit deeper with those. I want you to see what repentance includes. There's five things I want you to see that repentance includes. Four of these are from a few weeks ago, and I've added one to it this morning. But I want to say at the outset, I'm convinced I want to argue that if all five of these things are not here, it's not biblical repentance. There's a lot that's a facade of repentance that happens in Christianity. But if all five of these things are here, I do not believe this is biblical repentance because he lays out for us here in James 4, 8 through 10, what repentance involves. It's kind of a package deal. It's all or nothing if we really are going to experience repentance the way God is leading us in his grace to do. So let's look at these five things. Number one, repentance is recognizing our sin and grieving over it. It is recognizing our sin 
and grieving over. We just dug into the part of the text in verse 8 about recognizing our sin, but friends, that also it is grieving over our sin. God tells us how we should feel about our sin. Look at verse 9 now of this text, and look at how he describes how we should feel about our sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, there's several commands in a row in this section here. He gives us four in a row right here. He tells us, first of all, to be wretched. Some of your translations may say to grieve, or to one translation says to be miserable. Now, what is he saying here? He's describing the sorrow that we should feel when we realize our sin. When God's Holy Spirit within us convicts us and the Word becomes a light to us and we see that we're falling short of God's standards, we should grieve, we should feel an uncomfortableness in us because if we're a true child of God, when we sin, we are disobeying the one we claim to love and that should hurt us. He's jealous over us and so he leads us to a place where we feel grief over our sin. And this grief is so real, it has to be expressed. Notice the next two, he says, be wretched and then he says, mourn and weep. He's describing outward expressions of a broken heart that is sad about our sin that leads to outward expressions because it's real. It's not just a pretense of a grief. It's not just an intellectual thought, but there's a sadness in our hearts and emotions that we have offended God. And notice the next command here. This one has tripped up people over the years. He says, let your laughter be torn into mourning and your joy to gloom. Wait, wait, I'm supposed to, my laughter should stop and I should turn to mourning and my joy should stop, and I should turn it to gloom. Now, what in the world is he saying here in all of this for us? Now, you look at the rest of Scripture, and we're told in Scripture to rejoice, and to rejoice always, right? But what is it? If we're to rejoice always, now we're told to let our joy be turned to gloom, and our laughter be turned to mourning. What is he talking about here? Well, he's not saying it's wrong to laugh. It's not wrong to laugh. God has made us with people who can feel emotion and can laugh and delight in things. He's somber all the time. We're told in Scripture to rejoice always. So if you're a more stoic person, this should not be your life verse that you cling to and go, see, look, I don't have to smile in life. It's okay. This is not a command that all of our life is to go around with a stoic expression and being gloomy. He's talking here about laughing at sin. He's talking here about delighting in sin. So he's not rebuking us for having joy. We're to have joy at all times, but he's rebuking the joy people find in the temporal pleasures of this life instead of in Christ. He's rebuking the fact people delighting and finding pleasures in their sin instead of in God. He's rebuking us feeling lighthearted about our sin. And he's saying, stop. Stop laughing about your sin. Stop being carefree about your sin. Stop trying to find your joy and happiness in sinful pleasures. Instead, realize how serious it is to offend God. Realize how serious it is to sin against God and turn that laughter and carefree attitude about your sin to grieving that you have offended God. Now, there's a really important clarification here I want to make sure we get on this because there's a lot of confusion in Christianity over this. Friends, crying over sin, feeling sadness and sorrow over sin does not necessarily mean we are repenting biblically. Now, don't miss that. Crying tears over your sin and feeling sadness over your sin does not necessarily mean you are repenting biblically. Outward grief and even inward feelings of grief does not mean we are necessarily repenting. I want you to see 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. This is a very sobering verse for us from Scripture. Now, notice there's two distinctions here. There's two types of grief that God lays out here as he talks to his church. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, there are two different kinds of grief over sin. There's two different types of crying over sin. There's two different types of sadness people feel in their hearts over sin. And both of them are not from the Lord. 
And both of them are not from God. There is what he calls here worldly grief. You see that in the last part of 2 Corinthians 7.10. There's a worldly grief. And friends, I'm afraid this is too often what we see as people respond to sin in the life of the church. Worldly grief is when we are sad because of the consequences of our sin. These are legitimate tears, legitimate sadness people feel, but we're sad about the consequences of our sin. We're sad that we got caught. We're sad because our reputation has been tarnished. We're sad because we've lost our job or we've hurt, we felt hurt or wounded in the process. This is real sadness, friends, but this is not the sadness that draws us to the Lord. Notice this, worldly sorrow, worldly grief produces what? What does it lead to? death. Now, okay, let's talk about a wake-up call here, that there are people who, through their life, will sin and cry over their sin and mourn over their sin, but then they'll sin again, and they'll cry over the sin and mourn over the sin, and then they'll sin again and cry and mourn over the sin, and they will go through life mourning over their sin and never change and stand before the judgment seat still guilty before the Lord, because his tears did not change them. Friends, I've seen many people over the years cry real tears because of the consequences of their sin, but they never have changed. And they keep crying over their sin, but they never change. This is a worldly grief that leads to death and destruction in our life. But there's another type of grief, and this is a type of grief that God in His grace produces in the life of His children as they humble themselves to Him. Go back to the top of 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief, now it produces something different than that. It produces what? Uh, what? Repentance. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to this, to leads to salvation. This is the next phrase, without regret. Let's talk about a contrast, friends. You can have two believers sitting side by side, both crying over their sin, but one is crying over their sin because they got caught or because they feel hurt or because it has some consequence they didn't like, and they're on the path towards destruction. Another believer can be sitting side by side, and they can be crying and weeping over their sin, but it's a godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation without regret. And friends, we can't see on the outside what that is. Only God sees the heart. A godly grief here is a sadness not about consequences, but this is a type of grief that is sad because we've broken God's commands. Godly grief is grief that I have offended a holy God. Godly grief is a grief that I've turned from God. I'm not glorified Him. And it's a grief that I've hurt others who have been made in the image of God. Of God. So we need to keep that distinction in our mind, even as we grieve over sin and we help others grieve over sin, that all grief is not the same. But God in His grace produces a grief that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. So what is repentance? First of all, repentance is recognizing our sin and grieving over. Number two, repentance is acknowledging our sin to God. It's acknowledging our sin to God. We call this confession sometimes. But look back at verse 8 here in our text today. Notice this first phrase, draw near to God. Now, when we hear this text, draw near to God, if you're like me, my mind starts going to, okay, great, I'm going to go to church and draw near to God, and we're going to sing his praises, or we have a quiet time and open my Bible and read my Bible with my family. That's where our mind goes. That's not what the original audience would have heard on this, because this is Old Testament language. Remember, James is writing to Jewish background Christians. This is the language of the Old Testament for people returning to God after they sinned. When the nation had rebelled against God and forsaken God, this is the language that was used for the covenant renewal. When they had broken their part of their covenant with God and they would return to God corporately confessing their sins to God and crying out for his mercy. That was how the Old Testament describes drawing near to God. So when you hear this phrase, draw near to God, this is less about I need to go have a quiet time, I need to go sing some praises to God. This is more about I need to acknowledge my sin to God. I need to confess my sin to God. This is, an, this is a recognition of the type of prayer we call confession. And a great example of it, Psalm number 32, verse 5, gives us a glimpse of what this should look like. I love what the psalmist says. I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So what is repentance when God shows us where we're falling short? Repentance is, first of all, recognizing our sin and grieving over it. Repentance is, is, is going to God in prayer, confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin to him. Number three, and it's closely related, repentance is asking God's forgiveness. Repentance is asking God's forgiveness. Friends, because we've broken God's standards, because we've offended a holy God, we need to ask his forgiveness. I've said it before, but I want to repeat it for us here. Friends, in our culture, it's really popular to hear people talk about you need to forgive yourself. Friends, there's no biblical basis for needing to forgive yourself. When we sin, we sin against a holy God. We're not sinning against ourselves. We're sinning against God by breaking his standards. So the forgiveness we need is not from ourselves. We need the forgiveness from our creator who we have forgiven. And so we go to God, broken over our sin, acknowledging it to him, confessing it, and asking for his forgiveness. Now, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when you choose not to hold someone's sin against them. If your spouse sins against you, your kid sins against you, your friend sins against you, when you forgive them, you choose not to use it against them. If you forgive someone, you don't go back and say, hey, do you remember last week when you did that? Forgiveness is you let go of the offense. You choose not to use it against the person to hold it against them. Now, where's forgiveness in our text here? Well, go back to verse number eight here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, where's forgiveness here, friends? I want to ask you something. Can you cleanse yourself from your own sin? No. Can you purify your own heart from your own sin? No, we can't do this. This is not a call for me to somehow clean up my act and cleanse my hands and purify my heart. The only one who can do that is God. So when we run to God confessing our sins, we also run to God asking him to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from our sins and purify us from our sins. This is a cry for God's forgiveness, for God to treat us as though we had not sinned because he takes the punishment we deserve and puts it on Christ so we can be restored to God. I love how 1 John 1, 9 reminds us of this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But look at what forgiveness involves and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we go to God in forgiveness. He cleanses us. He does what verse 8 says. He cleanses our hands and he purifies our hearts because he takes all of our sin and puts it on Christ. He gives all of Christ's righteousness and puts it on us. So friends, when we approach God, we come to God covered in the righteousness of Christ so we can approach him and be with him. So repentance is recognizing our sin and grieving over it. It's confessing our sin. It's asking for God's forgiveness. Now friends, it's too easy for us to stop there. It's too easy to think, if I've done those things, I've really repented. But repentance has two more steps that I believe are essential for biblical repentance. Number four, after we've confessed our sin and we've asked God's for number four, we ask God to change us. I believe biblical repentance cries out asking God to change us. Look at verse 10 here of this text today. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now think about the word to humble. We saw this a few weeks ago. To humble means to arrange your life under, to submit to someone. True repentance is a repentance that longs for God to change us, that longs for God to transform us so that our life is arranged according to his purposes. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, we find grace to obey him where we failed him previously. So true repentance is not just, God, I sinned, forgive me. True repentance is, I'm grieving because I've offended God. True repentance is, I acknowledge my sin to God. True repentance is, I then go to God, ask for his, but true repentance says, God, I want you to change because I don't want to be back at this same place again. But there's one more I want you to see here. The fifth thing that I believe repentance involves, it involves receiving his forgiveness and grace. 
and involves receiving his forgiveness of grace, actually believing that when we confess our sins, he forgives, actually believing that we're welcomed into his presence, actually believing that God wants to change us in this. There's two promises in this text, and these are beautiful. They book in the whole text. Look at these promises back in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he, if he's in a good mood, might consider coming back to you. And he, if he's in a good mood, now draw near to God, and he what? He will draw near to you. Yes, this is a promise, friends. When we go to God in repentance, confessing our sins, God promises to draw near to us. God promises to restore us to right fellowship with him. It's a promise that we can cling to. And in verse 10, there's another one here. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we confess our sins and we grieve over our sins and we seek his forgiveness and we ask him to change us, he exalts us. He lifts our heads that are downcast and grieving. He reminds us that we are his children. He assures us, like I read from Romans at the beginning of service, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He assures us that we will not be separated from him, that we have eternity with him. And he reminds us that Satan's accusations against us have been silenced and he will not hear them because we belong to him. He's promised to do all of these things. Things. Friends, God's grace enables us to see our sin correctly and to repent appropriately. Beautiful examples of this in Scripture is King David, Psalm number 51. If you think about King David, he was a man who loved God, a man described as a man after God's own heart, but a man who sinned greatly. King David committed adultery. King David then committed murder and tried to cover it up and trying to, to cover up his sin. But God sent his grace to King David and showed him his sin. He sent a prophet named Nathan to David and confronted David's sin. I want you to hear David's repentance from Psalm 51. It'll be on the screen. You're welcome to listen along or read along. You're also welcome just to close your eyes and listen to David's confession. I want you, as you think, hear this, to see if you can't hear all five aspects of repentance in Psalm number 51 because they're all there. David recognizes his sin. He grieves over his sin. He confesses his sin. He asks God for forgiveness. He asks for grace to change, and he receives and believes his forgiveness. So listen to Psalm number 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Friends, he goes on, but that is a beautiful picture for us about repentance. That God's grace enabled King David to see his sin correctly, and then to repent appropriately. So I want to ask you this morning, is God's grace working in you in the same way to help you see your sin correctly and to help you repent 
appropriately. It's God's grace freeing you and me from the blindness to our sin. It's God's grace showing us through His Word and His Holy Spirit areas to where we're falling short of God's sin. Is God's grace convicting us of where we're falling short? And is His grace leading us to repentance like this, to where we grieve, to where we talk to God about our sin, to where we seek His forgiveness, where we ask Him to change us, where we receive and believe that He will do that for us? Because that's a good question and a question I want us to consider as we celebrate communion this morning. It's a question for us to wrestle with as we come to this sacred time of celebrating what Christ has done for us. Is God's grace showing us our sin, and is God's grace leading us to repent? As we come to communion, I want to remind you why we're doing this this morning. This is a reminder of how God's grace has come to us. It's a reminder of that incredibly high cost that was paid so you and I can have our sins forgiven. I want to remind you of what I hope you already know, but that God is so holy and so perfect, he can't look, he can't overlook sin. He can't be like, oh, I like her and I like him, and so I'm just going to ignore that sin. God's holiness and God's perfection requires that he punish every sin. The wrath of God has to be poured out on every sin that's ever committed. If he wasn't like that, he would know not be holy. And because the punishment has to be paid for every sin, either we bear that punishment, which takes an eternity, or Christ bears it for us. It's the only way. God cannot overlook sin, so either we bear it or Christ bears it for us. And so what communion is, is for followers of Christ to remind us that Christ came, that God came in human flesh as Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a perfect life and he never sinned. He perfectly fulfilled the law that you and I break over and over and over so he could go to that cruel Roman cross as a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute to take the punishment that you and I deserve so that we could be forgiven. We can run to God and say, forgive me of my sin. And God says, I will forgive you of your sin. It reminds us of the incredibly high cost that secures for us what we were talking about this morning, the ability to repent of our sins and know that we are forgiven. Because that's what communion is, friends. It's only for those who are followers of Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ and Christ alone, I'd encourage you just to watch and observe and just even use this time to pray and say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. This is something only for those who are trusting in Christ as their Lord and as their Savior to do. But if you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you are welcome to participate. This is not just for the members of Gateway, that if you are a follower of Christ and you know that God has rescued you and redeemed you from your sin, you are welcome to come and celebrate with us. I'm going to give us instructions in just a minute because it's going to look different today because of coronavirus. But before we observe communion, I want to take a few minutes to, to reflect and pray as, our, as Justin comes to play for us. I want to give you a few minutes to where you're sitting to pause and to reflect and to talk to God. To First of all, thank Him for the salvation you have. So just to ponder the fact that God in his mercy and love has chosen us and redeemed us when we're so undeserving. And just to thank him for that and ponder the fact of his grace and salvation. But it's also a chance for us to ponder how we're to view sin. If we realize there's areas of our life where we've been kind of callous towards our sin, areas where we've not taken our sin seriously, this is a chance to say, Lord, forgive me for that. It's a chance to say, Holy Spirit, search me, show me, are there any unconfessed sin in my life? And to use this as a moment to repent and to ask God to grow us in repentance. So as Justin plays, would you take just a few minutes in prayer right now where you're seated to thank God for his salvation and to rejoice in it and to help ask him to show you sin in your life and to repent appropriately.
Jesus, you are all we need. Makes us long for your wedding feast. The cup we drink, the bread we Reminds us you are all we need. Makes us long for your wedding feast. Jesus, we hunger and thirst for you. As we remember your sacrifice, we see the wounds from your hands and pierce extravagant love. Oh, how great the elements, God, as we partake in communion, we just think back on that price, God, your grace displayed on the cross, God, the cross meant for us, God, your wrath meant for us, God, yet your son bore that wrath on our behalf, God, God, you unleashed your wrath on sin, God, as your son, Jesus, became the propitiation for us, God. It took all that wrath. Displayed for all the world to see, God. Imagine on the cross, he's saying, Father, why have you forsaken me, God? God, it was our sin that put him there. But yet, through your son, Jesus, God, you made a way, God, and he was obedient to the cross, God. To die a sinner's death on our behalf, God, for those that you had given him, God, for those that you had saved, Father. And he bore that wrath obediently to the cross, God. So, God, as we take these elements, God, each time we do in remembrance of you, God, may we think on that body that was broken, God, and your blood that was poured out on our behalf, God. May we never take it for granted, God, that through you, through your name, through the Son, Jesus Christ, there is no other name by which we can or will be saved, God. Thank you for your love that you pour out on us through your Son, Jesus Christ, God. Ultimately, for your glory, that you may be glorified among the heavens, God, and among the nations, God, that your name will be made great, Father. God, be with us now as we go, God, and as we reflect on that salvation, God. May it urge us to 
share that gospel, God, to share that good news with those around us, God, with those that we encounter each and every day, God. Bring people in our path, God, and help us to remember that, God, when they come, Lord, and to share that good news of the gospel, Lord, that there is hope that is found in you, God. There is hope found in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.